God, we love you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for the testimony of lives that belong to you. Lord, people that have professed my life is not my own. I've been bought with the price. That price was the blood of Christ, and in him I am redeemed, and in him I have purpose, and in him I live for the glory of God. So, Lord, I pray now as we continue to teach through Romans, I pray that our hearts and our minds and our lives would be open, Lord. Let us be humble. Let us be hungry. Lord, let the result of this time together be one of unity amongst the body of Christ, transformation of our lives, Lord, salvation for those who need it, and Lord, your glory in this world through us. So, Lord, we love you. God, we give you all the glory, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm. So we're, we're coming to a very exciting part of, of this letter, this pastoral letter from Paul to the church in Rome. Think of a time where you've been trying to teach some, someone something, and specifically something that is beneficial for them. If you're a Christian and you've ever shared your faith with someone, shared your, your hope in Christ with the hopes that they would come to a saving understanding and, and experience relationship in Christ, that's a great thing to draw on. But think of that kind of moment where you've been trying to convince someone and teach someone of something that's for their good. There's two exciting moments in this process. Right, first is when they get it, right? When, when they say, ah, and it's like, you know, that's exciting. That's, that's exciting. The other one I, I would say is this, is when you see the light bulb start to flicker. Like when you see that, that they're starting to get it. You see that, and, and one of the ways that we know that is by the questions we get asked. You start, when people start asking the right questions. That's an exciting moment because you start to see, okay, like you pick up momentum, you start to see that it's starting to take root maybe in their mind, maybe even in their heart, and it starts to kind of lead you along the way of how you can answer to where they're at because now you're being given, given insight into a way that you can speak in their language. So what's great as we continue in our teaching of Paul to the church in Rome, Paul starts to use this technique throughout this letter providing the voice of the invisible objector. It's, it's, he's, he's writing and he's thinking about his audience, and right now he's addressing the Jewish, the Jewish Christ follower, and he's imagining their objections. And, and Paul is really, really good at this. If you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Uh, we're going to look through verses 1 through 8 today. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's one near you on the floor. Please feel free to grab that. If you don't have one at all, take that with you. That's our gift to you. We'll also have uh, verses on the screen. And you can also use the YouVersion Bible app. Go to the More tab. Look for events. Uh, we'll have something pop up there that kind of provides the Scripture and maybe some further questions for reflection you can use as well. Um, but as, as we're looking at this, you know, Paul starts imagining the responses of the Jewish Christian. And he starts using those questions that he knows would be coming at him to teach, to bring along. And Paul, let's just remember who Paul is. He's very qualified to do this. Paul was the Jew of all Jews. He was. He was he, you couldn't get any better. And he kind of gives an account to this in Philippians 3, 4 through 5. This was back when he was Saul, before he was Paul. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, that means ability to attain righteousness in your own works. He says, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew 
of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to, the, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he, he is qualified to put himself in the seat of his audience, the Jewish Christ for the Jewish Christian in the church, and think about their responses, think about their objections, and he does this masterfully. So he's not manipulating. He is, this, is, this is discernment. This is, this is pastoral shepherding leadership. He knows what's in the heart of his audience, and he is in generosity and in love bringing them into the conversation. So he knows the mind of a Jewish person of the time and masterfully anticipates their responses in order to lovingly bring them and us along in this teaching. So there's really one, Paul, one point Paul is making today in our text. So, so as we work through it, we're going to follow his teaching to come to this one glorious truth, okay? So let's read our text in full today, Romans 3, 1 through 8. Here we go. <clears throat> he says this, then what advantage has the Jew? He's talking about something. We'll get there in a second. Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way to, much in every way. to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged." But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So this is a little confusing to try to read because he's kind of switching between voices and, and, and who is being addressed without necessarily identifying that. So we're going to unpack all of that. So the first objection that we see at the beginning is the question of what is the benefit of belonging and participating in circumcision. We see that in 1 and 2. Uh, in, in verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? What's, what's the advantage of being Jewish? Or what is the value of circumcision? So he's addressing these two things, but before, before, we, before we address what he's pointing us to here, let's be reminded what started this entire discourse of Paul kind of deconstructing. Uh, and we saw this kind of in the hinge verse of the entire letter that we read a few weeks ago, Romans 1, 16, and 17. And this really, this is the thesis of the entire letter. It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul, throughout all this, has been developing a right understanding of the gospel and the security that lies in Christ alone. So the first thing we need to see is that Paul is exposing his audience's false securities. They say, what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Well, if you, just, if you look back to what we just studied the past few weeks in chapter 2, he, he, he's already been unpacking, and this is what they're referring to in this question. He's been saying, hey, being a Jew, being an Israelite, possessing the law and being circumcised gives you no benefit over someone else. The benefit is showing that the law is written on your heart 
and that it is not merely a physical circumcision that makes you belong to the people of God, but the circumcision of the heart. Um, you can go back and listen to those sermons in, in full uh, if you want to on our website or through a podcast. But that's basically what he was laying out. So this is what they're objecting to. Now, like, so, so what's the point? What's the point? We've been the people of God our entire history. We've been obedient to these things our entire history. So what's the point? What benefit is this? So, so we all, just, just for a moment, we all have false security. And very similarly, we, we have this false security that, that we are redeemed, that we are saved, that we, are found, that we find favor with God just by belonging to a people, participating, the in, involvement in church, being here on Sundays, being in a small group, you know, those kind of things. Like We, we kind of hang our hat and our security just on that association. We also, very similarly, find that security in participating in rituals and practices, whether it's the simple things like, hey, I'm a good person. I, I pray before my meals. I'm nice to my neighbor. I practice the, the ordinances given the church of baptism and the Lord's Supper. I observe all those things. Like All of those things can be false security. And the problem here is that all of those things are meant to be an evidence of belonging to Christ and not the avenue to belonging in Christ. So that's, that's where we find a false security is when they become, they, they become the thing that we hang on to. They become the badge that we wear to say that we are redeemed when they're only meant to be an evidence. They're only meant to be an evidence, never the avenue. So this is what the people of Israel, the Jewish people have been, have been doing, and that's what they're claiming, and that's what they're trying to understand. It's like, so this has always been all of my life. This has been beaten to my head. Like, I am, I am part of the covenant people. God keeps the covenant. I am a part of those people. I've seen over and over again where we've been disobedient, and yet because we are his covenant people, he's delivered us. But what they missed was the point of it all. So they say, well, what's the value? And Paul, it's like he, he's emphatic through this entire section, but he, he replies very emphatically in verse 2. He says, much in every way. That's like saying, no, it's it's great advantage no matter how you look at it. It is of great advantage no matter how you look at it. It is it is you cannot overstate it. So he goes on to say, well, to begin with, the, the, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And to say to begin with, you would if you were to read this, you would say, Well, he doesn't, there's like no number two. And I remember learning just the, the simple rules of outlining, you don't have a point two if you, you don't have point one if you don't have a point two. It's just a dash. Like, so to, like, to say to begin with, you would expect him to go somewhere else, but this is the only argument he makes. So what he is saying here is, and what we know he's saying just from the, looking at uh, the way that uh, language is used uh, in other writings, he's saying of first importance, of most importance, he's saying you have been given the oracles of God. You have the Word of God. You have the law. He says you have the means of knowing and understanding God. That's what the law would have been. That's what it's for. You have the means, the instruction of how to live the life that is full, satisfying, and God-glorifying as you show you belong to Him and your lives show His character. You have great benefit because you've been given this Word. So the gift of God's word is immeasurable and having the opportunity to be exposed to it and changed by it 
is of greater worth and advantage than any earthly gain. Again, the, that is where, and we'll come back to this, but that is much of the error is that their benefit, their, their place of promise had become all about earthly position and gain. So what he's saying here is there is great gain being alongside the people of God even to those who do not believe. Even to those who are unrighteous, who don't measure up. Even for those that claim to be Christian. It's having access to the means of grace. What do, I mean? what do I mean by that? God in Christ is the source of grace, but the church, the people of God, the body of Christ is the means of grace. When we think of evangelizing the world to Christ and loving the world in Christ, we must think of introducing them to gospel community as part of an intentional work. Just the exposure is of great benefit. Yes, he, Paul is calling us to the deeper reality of it. It doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop to just exposure in blind adherence, but it, it goes all the way to the transformed heart, the circumcised heart. But there is great benefit. So we must work. And he's calling them like, hey, remember why you were blessed in the first place as my people. You were blessed so that you would be a blessing to all the nations. And so as, as the church today, as we carry forward, just a great moment of midpoint application. Because of this, there is great benefit. As we think about how we intentionally live our lives to, to proclaim the love of God, to invite others to Christ, as we think intentionally and strategically, the church the people around you should absolutely be part of the way that you think of how you're going to do that in someone else's life. Absolutely. So what does this mean? It means that we must strive to live as a community worthy of this work as well as being intentional to invite people in. It would be very, very devastating if we were just an insular, judgmental, selfish people and we said, hey, come see the love of God and they came into our community and it was toxic. It was selfish. It was self-absorbed. It was lazy. It was, not, it was not driven by the heart of God for redeeming the world. The very reason that he sent his son, Jesus, into this world to fix what was broken, to satisfy his own judgment. And so we as the church must strive to invite people in, and then we must strive to be a community that that invitation is effective for God's glory and redeeming work. So what benefit? It's of great benefit because it reveals the character of God. You've been given the word. You know the truth. It's not just about hoarding it. It's not just about attaining it intellectually. It is about being transformed by it and inviting others in. So Paul, so Paul follows with another objection. Romans 3, 3 says, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And man, what a, a current question. What a current question when, when the hypocrisy of the church, the judgmentalness of, the, of those who claim Christ in our world are pointed at to say, well, man, God can't be good. God can't be real. Look at these people. And what we're seeing here is this claim that, that God's righteousness stands on his own. His truthfulness stands on his own. These Jewish people that Paul is addressing has so elevated their, their view of themselves and their status that they were defining the character and faithfulness of God by the faithfulness of mankind. 
You remember Paul's rebuke just a few verses earlier? And in, and in the use of this letter, it would have been just a few moments earlier where he said in, uh, in, in 2.24, he says, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so they're, they're trying to, like, again, like, excuse themselves. They're trying to, like, explain away or, like, find a way out. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithlessness of God? As I was reading through this, um, Amber's journey to faith came to mind. And uh, I had called her this morning (laughs) and said, will you share just a little bit of your testimony? And, And Amber does not like being in front of people. So she said, yes, so that's a lot of courage. And, um, and she says she's never held a microphone before, so maybe twice. So I just wanted Amber, this is my wife, by the way. I just wanted, <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, I just wanted Amber to share just, a few, just in a few moments kind of her journey to trusting God. So I was, I guess, kind of raised in the church. We went periodically. It was nothing consistent. My personality is a very black and white, needs to make sense, Um, it needs to kind of run together somewhat, it doesn't, when there's a distance in between what's being said and done, I question a lot. Um, So that's what I was seeing in the mix of my diverse family dynamic, um, was that there wasn't a consistency of what I would hear whenever I did go to the church of what this God is. Um, So through that, it built up a lot of resentment towards the church and towards the people within the church and the hypocrisy that um, that exists within it. Um, so I became very bitter and very angry um, because of life circumstances that kind of happened along the way and seeing that I was only being told that I need to start learning who this Jesus is and you need to believe who it is. So that kind of just gives an example of what was being put out there for me to see and just kind of... You just believe it because that's what you do, um, and it's the right thing to do. And never one, no one ever really explained the gospel to me. And so because it wasn't explained and it wasn't seen, I um, did not want anything to do with it. And so that just kind of hardened my heart over the years. And there was a, I think it was 19 or 20, and... Um, was not in a good place. I was depressed. I was having just very hard circumstances in my life that were happening and taking over and and really just making me feel like there was no point to any of it. Um, And so in the midst of that, I had um, a beloved friend who's here, Emily, who who just... (laughs) who um, really just walked alongside me. She went to church, and she would talk to me, and she would talk about the gospel, and she would talk about how, you know, yeah, that's right. That is upsetting to see that and for that to be something to witness and um, but allowed me to have a voice in my own place where I was and allowed it to be a conversation throughout our relationship um, to see that there were things that were different and that you could be there could be a difference for someone who believes in Jesus. So looking back now, I see that those were tiny seeds that were just being planted throughout our relationship and it led up to a moment of my sister moved to um, Georgia with my dad and stepmom and was um, 
living with him, and we were always very close. And through this season of me being very angry and bitter, I was pushing everyone around me away. Um, and so it was a spontaneous moment of me going to go visit my sister and um, call her, and I was like, hey, I'm going to come and surprise you this weekend. And she was like, I have to call you right back, and hangs up the phone. Calls me back and says, okay, I, we got your ticket. Dad just got your ticket. You're going to come to go skiing with me. And I was like, oh, okay, I've never been skiing. That's fun, okay. And she was like, and it's with my church. And I remember being stunned, but thankfully we have a big God who directed my voice to say, okay, I'm going to go. And I hung up the phone, and I remember my first reaction was not one that I could say in public because it was like, what did I just do? Like, I just said yes to go to a weekend getaway with people that go to church in Southern Baptist. <laughs> so... So I go, and um, we got there late and went right into the service, and my sweet husband was the one who was leading the worship there, and I'd met him before going on a visit, and they were talking on, I can't even, Beatitudes, and um, really resistant the whole time that he was speaking and not thinking, this is pointless, like, why am I here? I'm just trying to build a relationship with my sister again, and um, in that moment, He's speaking about it, and it just dawned on me of the resentment and the hurt and the um, disconnect that I had had about the gospel doesn't have to apply to me. Like, the things that I did not like what and how I saw them, I don't have to be that. Like, this God seems to be big, and he, be, he seems to have grace and compassion, and he's there for you consistently. Um it all started to make sense that I could do what the scripture says and I can follow a life that is in resemblance to what the scripture is and be vulnerable in those moments of I'm angry and I'm bitter and I'm this and that because this God is big and I can express that and be very open about it. And so through that moment, it transformed my heart and I responded to know him as my savior and um it's not been the same since, and so I've laughed and had joy since then, and it's been really great just seeing that. So I'm pretty much the open book, so if you ask me a question, I pretty much just say it, and it's kind of can be blunt, and that's the reason why of just showing that vulnerability that we're able to have because of what the gospel is. Amen. Thanks. Love you. Yeah, so much beauty in that testimony, and I, and I love one of the things I've always heard Amber say in her testimony is, I just came to the moment of realizing that people, all the people in my life that I had looked to and, and experienced those things with, were not, they were not God. He is not like them. And, and he is good, like she said. And I've always loved hearing that. And there's so much beauty uh, in her testimony to hear even her talk about her family and, and to see now, 12, 15, 20 years later, how the Lord has even worked in that family and in those uh, lives and, and, and brought young believers who were who were zealously legalistic to now being full of grace and, and loving. And so it's just a beautiful, beautiful story. But yeah, just the way that, you know, that <clears throat> one of the greatest obstacles that Amber faced and that we see the, the this audience calling to was, well, what about these people that proclaim to be that proclaim to be people of God when they're unfaithful? How are we to understand God? Does that make him unfaithful? And he's saying he says no, and the problem with that is that people, 
mankind, all people, we're all by nature covenant breakers. God is not. He is the maker and the keeper of covenant. We are all, we all want the easy way out. We all want to justify away and explain away. We're blame shifters, shifters, we're shape shifters. We're gonna always obfuscate. That's, that's a word, right? It's the word of the week, maybe. We always want to push off on someone else. I really regret using that. Um, stupid. But we, but we want to deflect. We want to call, we, 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 I mean, it's Adam and Eve, right? It was the woman you gave me, right? It goes all the way back there. Like, we're all blame shifters. We're all shape shifters. We're going to take on, we're chameleons. We're going to take on what it takes to, to benefit us. This is all of our nature, and we want to ascribe that to God. But we must remember that he created us, not us creating them. He created us in his image. We don't get to go and turn around and make him into our image. Praise God. Thankfully, that's not the case. Because, yes, there is beauty in all of us. Because we were created good in love. We were created in his image. We, we are covered by common grace. There is beauty and there is, there is dignity in all of us. But yet, in what, what redeems us, what gives us worth, that is rooted in who God is. And so he's, so that he's, Paul is mercifully calling them to this. He's rebuking them lovingly. They could not fathom that they could be unfaithful without God being unfaithful. Do you see a theme here? Once again, they are so elevated in their view. And let's just, let's just go ahead and jump in there. And oftentimes we are so elevated in our view of self and our view of intellect and our reason that we think that we get to decide what is true and what is right. That we get to decide how God must be. And if we can't comprehend, then it can't be true of him. But if he is an infinite God, infinitely good, infinitely loving, wouldn't we want there to be a moment when our comprehension just meets his limit? Wouldn't that be an assuring thing? So that's what Paul's calling them to. He's what he's calling us to. He answers emphatically once again. He says, no way, by no means. He says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And the implications of that are devastating and glorious all at the same time. If every single person relied on their own righteousness, we would all be condemned. And God would remain true, and he would remain glorious, and he would be exalted, and that would be right. It doesn't jive with our sense of fairness, but that would be right if, we, if indeed God is who he says he is and who we want him to be. That's the, that's the case. Paul then quotes one of their heroes of the Jewish people. He, he quotes King David, their greatest king. He's like, this is, this is personal. And they would have immediately known that when he says, when he says um, what he says here in verse 4, the end of verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That little sentence would have been connected to the entire, the entire chapter of Psalm 51 that David wrote. Does anybody know what's happening in Psalm 51? If you do, help me out. What's, what's David writing about? Who, who, who started to say something? Yeah. Yeah. After, after he was confronted by Nathan, after he was set up by Nathan for Nathan to say, you are that man, when, and, and when he was confronted with his sin with Bathsheba, where he committed adultery and got her pregnant, and then to hide his sin, had her wife killed, his, her wife, her husband killed. So this is, he's confronted with this sin and he's, he's repenting. So let's look at what Psalm 51 says. This is a cry of repentance. 
Psalm 51, 1 through 4. 4 is where we come to the quoted text in Romans 3. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. So you hear him crying out for mercy. He's, cry, he's crying out for God to deliver him somehow. He says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. We hear a confession and cleanse me from my sin and need, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And then he looks to the character of God and he says, against you, you only. Not, and that, that's, this is the ultimate sense of his sin. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he sinned against her husband. But ultimately, his greatest sin was against God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that, therefore, because, because of this, we can know you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So as God's as, as he's saying like, hey, I have sinned. Yes, I'm crying out for mercy, but whatever you decide in response to my sin is just, God, because I have sinned against you. So what, what Paul is doing here to these elite-minded, religiously pious and arrogant people, he's saying like, hey, you, this judgment against you, you deserve. You've sinned against God. Like you have. He's the only righteous one. He's the only holy one. He's the one who created you in love for his purpose, and you've sinned against him. So yeah, this is you. So he's just, he's just eradicating. He's just like taking out all their crutches and all their blinds that they're hiding behind, and he's just stripping it all away. Paul is showing them and us that God is holy and just, and in his righteousness, if it meant that every person were condemned, like I said, in their judgment, and only God remained standing, it would only prove his righteousness all the more. So what is your view of God? Where does your, your sense of justice come from? Is it your emotions? Is it your sense of what you decide gets to be right and wrong? Or do you start with the character of God and the truth that he gave that reflects his character and is meant to show us our identity? What is your view of God? Well, the Jewish voice Paul puts forward is still trying to find a way out. They're still trying to find a way to justify their way of lukewarm and legalistic and just rebellious living. Romans 3, 5-6 says, But if our, righteous, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. They're saying, like, hey, if it's if my sin shows God to be more holy and more righteous, why should I be punished if I'm doing him good, if I'm doing good to the world of showing his holiness? And Paul, like almost like not being able to stomach the words, even though he's presenting this view, he's like, I speak in a human way. He just has to qualify. He's like, I just just giving the example makes me feel icky, but it's helpful. So, so the logic, again, if our sin causes the holiness of God and to be revealed in a greater way, why would he condemn us? This question sets up for us the rest of these verses. In response, Paul points out three contradictions in the heart of the, the audience, of the, the, the Israelite, the Jewish Christian that poses this question. And for us, that would derive our sense of truth and our sense of worth and our sense of right and wrong from ourselves instead of God. So first, he says very emphatically once again in verse 6, if God's wrath on our unrighteousness proved him to be unrighteous, how could he judge the world? The contradiction is that this is the very thing that the Jewish hypocrite would want. They would want to be able to stand as judge over the entire world as they face the judgment of God and they get to experience the privilege of God. 
That's what they want. So he's saying, like, hey, you, of all people that want to see the whole world judged, you would be nullifying God's right to judge if you were given what you want. Who else is worthy to cast judgment? If we're honest, at the very least, we've sadly seen this to be more of the interest of the church and maybe even ourselves uh, than seeing the world come to be saved. During the summer, we, we did a sermon kind of looking at the six different kinds or the brands of the gospel that we often see taught. Uh, this was one of them, like the, the, the pursuit of being right. Like to, to, to be, to be uh, in Christ is to be given the privilege of being right, and the greatest concern is rightness. So you see a lot of theological swagger. You see a lot of, a lot of just like, again, requiring that people conform to our dogma as opposed to extending the grace and love of God in Christ and letting him transform. So once again, he's, he's saying you, you don't, the position is not just one of privilege and rightness. We've often ne- neglected the call of Christ to love as we hold out truth. Our holding out of truth is meant to be invitational. Yes, there are times of proclamation and confronting but it is in response to someone tasting and seeing the hope and love of Christ. And the truth is the remedy. We don't get to require conformity before someone is transformed. The gospel of Jesus transforms. The nation of Israel was blessed. They were set apart for God's glorious purpose so that through them all the nations would be blessed. As we already said. So he's reminding them of that. You weren't set apart to rule. To judge. I am the judge, he says. Thank God. So the same is for us. So God is the only one who can judge the world, not us. We are called to be the light of the world. We're called to be sent as Jesus was sent. So the second contradiction is in verse 7. Paul now speaks to how they are treating him. And this is one of those confusing moments where we don't see this switch of subject and the switch of who's speaking. But, but this is Paul like speaking to how they're treating him in verse 7. He says, <clears throat> excuse me, he says, but if through my lie, he's talking about the, the accusations they make to him, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So he's saying like, hey, if you got your way, guess what? You couldn't even condemn me because even my sin would be a case for God's holiness to be revealed. So he's just, he's just dismantling them little by little in a masterful way. So he says in his claim that you cannot condemn me um, or else you would be contradicting your own argument. Don't be confused here, though. Paul is not making a case for anyone to go on sinning. We'll get deep into this in chapters 5 and 6. Instead, he's meeting his audience where they are in hopes of revealing God to be the only true one. And isn't that just a glorious thing of how God works in all of us? Look, if you have a hard time with the Old Testament, let me just give you that little clue. That, well, that's what we see is God is meeting a people where they are to help them understand him and bring them to where they need to be. Um, that's what Paul is doing here. So he's not making a case that we can go, he should be able to go on sinning. He'll unpack that in great detail. And lastly, and very similarly in verse 8, they've accused Paul of teaching that the law has no authority in our lives. And as he says, <coughs> excuse me, and why not do evil that good may come? 
as some people have slanderously charged us with saying. So again, this will continue in chapters 5 and 6. But to do evil, remember, is to live against the law of God. Paul's teaching was known. He is summarizing in this letter what is known to be teaching. So it's not like this is the first time it's been communicated. So there, the, the reputation's out. So he is summarizing. He's bringing it all together. So again, this entire letter is part of what Paul's already been teaching. They knew that. And I'll tell you, if, if you haven't asked the question, this is just a little preview of what's to come, but if you have never asked the question, well, why be obedient at all? Why live out God's standard at all if I'm covered by grace in Christ, if it's his righteousness, not mine? If you've never asked that question, then I would posit you've never fully understood grace. I don't say that as an accusation. I say that as an invitation to dig a little deeper and say, what is it that the grace of God in Christ has worked in you? Because that's when you're really, again, talking about right questions, that's a right question. And that means you're getting close to the gospel. You're getting close to understanding grace. So when he teaches throughout this letter, what he teaches throughout the rest of this letter is the substance of what he's been teaching all along. Paul ends with a final verdict. Again, as they're trying to to just kind of olay this whole thing, he just makes it really clear. When he says their condemnation is just, he's talking to the objector. The condemnation that you're trying to get out of, that you've tried to say is not yours, is just. It sticks to you. Have you ever done any kind of furniture restoration or watched a show where they do? Um, it's a lot like that. You don't just put a new coat of paint over a lacquer finish. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be horrible. You have to prep the piece. You've got to strip it down. You've got to get the chemicals, the, the, the thinner, and you've got to put it on there, and you've got to strip it down and get down to the base. You've got to sand it down, and you've got to clean it. It takes multiple passes before you can start working toward how you want the new piece to look. That's what Paul's doing here. And he's almost done. The last couple of weeks, Paul's been applying the thinner to remove the old veneer. This week, he's sanding it down. He's, he's, he's refining it. He's getting rid of all the high points. Next week, he'll do the final cleansing before starting to work toward the new product. Paul has made it clear that being a Jew is not a privileged place. It's not a privileged place in regards to how someone is granted entrance into the kingdom. The Jew has always enjoyed the claim of being the people of promise. The error began when their affections and ambitions began to be aimed and limited to earthly power and position. They missed the point, and this is in review, they missed the point that the entire reason that they had always been sustained, delivered, and, and held up as the people of covenant was so that the world would understand and know God in all his eternal glory and make him known to all the nations. Jesus came and he made it impossible to continue in this this false idea. So while it would be a dreadful thing for, for someone holding this view that had always clung to this national identity to hear this news, it is also ultimately far more satisfying and ultimately liberating for them because what the law could not do, grace and the gospel of Christ did. The law could not save and redeem, but instead it could only point to the need we all have for a Savior and illuminate the magnificence of Christ 
that he came and fulfilled the law in every way. Paul, Paul is calling us to trust God, to trust God as he worked in Christ above all else, above your religious adherence, above your family lineage, above your census box that you check, above your affiliations, above culture's definitions. We all have excuses and ways of justifying and, and, and stepping aside. If we just, Paul is trying to help us just get a direct hit of the truth of God and the grace he's given in Christ. So this is our point for today. All of Paul's refuting was focused on one thing. Did you notice it? What did he always come back to? He came back to the character of God. God is good. God is holy. God is sovereign. God is righteous. God is just. God is mercy. God is love. As you go throughout this week, prayerfully examine how you define truth, how you define right and wrong. Carefully examine how you view God. Is it according to your standard? Or is it that it is the right given to God, the author and sustainer of life and truth? As you go throughout this week, pray. Pray to that God would humble your heart and realize there is no greater freedom than abiding in God's good rule and reign. And then consider, does your life give a compelling reason to those who do not believe that God is good and His truth is good? Again, the remedy here is not to work harder, not to make your list and live it out, but to know God. How do we grow in our knowing of Him? He's given us the Word. Again, of what benefit is it? Of great benefit, we've been given His truth in which to know Him, in which to know how to live. Dig in, respond in obedience. Be in prayer. Be a people of prayer. I would say if you, if, and I, I mean, again, every, if, anyway, we would all say we don't pray enough. We would all say that. And just prayer exhibits a posture of dependency and humility. So acknowledge that he is God and pray. Spend time and pursue and be intentional to be in gospel fellowship. We provide spaces here on Sundays in small groups, but there's also just life, and that's where it's rich, is life. So be intentional to invite people in. Be intentional to accept invitations. Be intentional to invite others to observe. And then give of yourself, just as Christ gave all of himself, and serving in whatever way you are able. Allow God to strip away all that keeps you from surrendering. Surrendering to the fact that we need him. Sounds funny to say, but not that he needs us. He wants to use you as his joy, but we need him. So be humbled. Let's pray. God, you are good. <clears throat> Man, we say those words a lot. We say them a lot. I pray that as we say those words, it would cause an explosion of thoughts in our heart and mind. Lord, all of a sudden, just rolling us through this highlight reel of your goodness. Lord, as we've seen in all of history and as we've seen in our own lives, Lord, and, and 
or just thinking about kind of false securities and false claims. And I can even hear the indignation of Paul's audience here and saying, well, what's the benefit? Lord, and I, there's a whole other category, God, of, of how we kind of have this self-driven motive often in our pursuit of you to say, well, God, if I'm obedient, you owe it to me to bless me, God. And Lord, if I, if I do this, I should get this. And God, I just pray that we would see there's nothing greater than letting our lives be an offering to you. There's nothing more satisfying. And Lord, that is where blessing comes from. That is where satisfaction is. So Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the word become flesh and you've given us your word. Let us not hoard it to ourselves selfishly. Let us not pursue it merely intellectually so that we can show what we know but let us be transformed by it as your Holy Spirit works in us to illuminate truth and to transform us. Lord, we are new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. So Lord, let us be a community that is worthy to say that as we love and live, that people would see you and not revile you. Let us have an affection for our community and all of its imperfections to trust it or that we could invite others in to be loved and to be introduced to your truth in Christ. Lord, we pray, we thank you for a space this morning to come together and to have fellowship, to pray, to, to hear from your truth, to be taught by you. We pray that it would bear fruit and bring evidence outside of these walls. Give us unity of the Spirit in Christ. Our life is yours. As we come to the table now to take communion, Lord, um, let us just... Be humble and courageous. In Jesus' name, amen.